Вільний світ має все необхідне, щоб зупинити російську агресію і привести державу-терориста до історичної поразки. І це важливо і не тільки для нас. Це важливо для глобальної демократії, для усіх тих, хто цінує свободу. Тим більше це важливо зараз, коли Росія ще й збирає сили для чергової ескалації. For decades, democracies around the world have been under siege amid a rising tide of authoritarianism and populism. Vladimir Putin's world appeared to be the wave of the future, with autocracy gaining ground in Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. Scenes of Ukrainians fighting and dying to defend their fragile democracy from a larger authoritarian neighbor have strongly resonated, at least in the Western world. So was Russia's war on Ukraine and Ukraine's thus far successful defense of itself the beginning of a turning point? Is the wave of recent democratic decline about to reverse itself? Well, stick around because I've got three awesome guests to help us unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And also joining us from our nation's capital is Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia bureaus of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Welcome back to the podcast, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Good to have you. And joining us also from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, the fellow for malign influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Welcome back to The Vertical, Josh. Great to be in The Vertical with three longtime friends. Great to see you all. So um, so one of the fundamental differences we all understand between Ukraine and Russia is that Ukraine is a democracy, albeit an imperfect one, um, and Russia decidedly isn't. Every election in Ukraine since independence has been free, fair, and competitive, um, with the minor exception of the 2003 vote, which was overturned and then redone in a free, fair, and competitive election. Every election in Russia, on the other hand, has been a rigged exercise in political theater. To get us started, I wanted to get the three of you to give me your top-of-the-line thoughts on how Ukraine's spirited defense of its democracy is resonating and having knock-on effects amid this democratic backsliding we've been seeing over the past decade. Jonathan, this is your wheel horse, so why don't you get us started? Yeah, I, I, Ukraine winning this war, and it's not just about, Brian, a spirited defense uh, and what, obviously, they're standing for democratic values, but winning this war is so important for democracies globally, including for Russia. And I believe this uh, a, a win and how we define that, that's a different discussion. In the end of the day, 
would have a dramatic impact on what is taking place in Russia, including the possibility of a change in leadership. Uh, but it would send a strong signal globally, given the implications of what's taking place, um, that that democracy is back, is supported, uh, and that it is um, it's worth fighting for. And I think that's why you're seeing the Biden administration, European allies and partners rallying around Ukraine, because this is so important. This is the crux of uh, of what is taking place, authoritarianism versus democracy. President Biden has talked about this this very fight, and it's taking place right now in in Ukraine. And when we think about China, about the potential for a similar type of action to take place with respect to Taiwan, uh, the threats to democracy globally, a win here is particularly important. So Ukraine is on the front line of that battle, uh, but it's not just about winning this moment. It's about helping Ukraine uh, win this war and then helping to modernize, uh, reconstruct and recover. And I think this will have a dramatic impact on Russia, uh, the Russia that we see down the road. Do you think we're seeing much knock-on effects yet? I mean, elsewhere. I mean, I want to dive into specific cases in a moment after we get our top-line thoughts out there. But I, you know, Brazil comes to mind. Um, but then again, by the by, the same token, the Philippines and Hungary also come to mind. Um, yeah. So, do, what what do the trends look like right now? Well, this is really important because you you brought up Hungary, uh, and I think a lot of us have been shouting from the rooftops that. Democratic backsliding in, in Hungary was not in the national security interests of the United States, our partners and allies. And it took the EU quite some time, not just because of the situation in Ukraine, but you see the, the potential for concern about how Hungary might uh, stand in the way of support for Ukraine. But you see the EU taking steps now to hold, but, hold back budgetary support uh, for Hungary unless it changes its ways uh, and takes steps to reverse backsliding. You see similar, frankly, with Poland as well within the EU. So I, I do take this as a signal that in particular because the United States and the EU are the two largest funders of democracy support globally, um, and they are the two critical nodes to democracy success. You see steps being taken already. And I think with this, with the Biden administration sort of strengthening its alliance with democracies, including in Asia, and as it relates to to Taiwan and security, I think you're you're seeing some movement in the right direction, and it is not going to be. This isn't linear. <laughs> There's going to always be challenges, and I think the president uh, Biden typically talks talked about democracy as like mowing the grass. You know, so you mow it, it grows. So there's a real challenge in sort of keeping focus and attention, including in the president's latest national security strategy, which I thought once again puts a, a real spotlight and a priority on strengthening democracy globally. We'll have the second summit for democracy uh, at the end of March, really critical. And so uh, the, the forces of democracy are marching forward. We're seeing success on areas that Josh, uh, Josh and I work on, which is on countering corruption, uh, that's just one area, uh, strengthening the role for civil society, for independent media, uh, and more commitments that are being made. Um, I hope that continues. Great. Uh, jo Josh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, 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 certainly the effectiveness of of Ukraine's defense is, is a powerful source of, of inspiration. If we were having this conversation exactly a year ago, the concern would then have, have, have been that, that Russia's uh, coming 
uh, potential invasion serves as a warning that charting your own independent course might not be a viable option for democracy that neighbors a, a neo-imperialist autocracy. But but yes, Ukraine's success on the battlefield, the resolve that we first started to see a year ago with the long lines to sign up for territorial defense and then Zelensky's refusal to flee. And now every day in the trenches of Bakhmut, it, it, it sends a powerful message that sovereign defense of a free and independent democracy is entirely possible. And I appreciate that, you know, your spirited framing of of this international uh, momentum, because this past year has seen liberal democracy fighting back, starting with Ukraine. But also you mentioned Brazil and there's Iranian women protesting the the, you know, the pro-democracy election results, not just in Brazil, but also in the United States. Very important and a new generation of Chinese protesters stepping out into the most heavily surveilled streets in the world. So um, that's the good news. But I, I, I have to say it's, it would be premature and simplistic to, you know, to call it the end or to, to uh, credit even that mostly to Ukraine um, for a couple of reasons. One is that there's, there are counterexamples. You mentioned Hungary and the Philippines. There's also India and Italy, and you know we could debate uh, Israel. And 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 two is that when you look at any given case, positive or negative, there there are often even more important factors beyond Ukraine. I, I do think it's important that the United States administration is back in democracy as well, not only in Ukraine, but also internationally and, and here at, at home where it's a contested struggle. There's also a positive interaction factor between Biden and Zelensky. You know, the, the, the world got to see that on display most recently uh, in the powerful imagery of those two leaders of the free world standing together at the White House. But that actually goes back. It started even two weeks after Biden was inaugurated, when Zelensky, confident that he had strong American backing, took Medvedchuk's television channels off the air. And then it was less than two days after that that the, the Russian military started building up on Ukraine's borders. Mm -hmm. So the Americans and the Ukrainians are are bucking each other up and the world. And and lastly, I would say just in, in, as important of a factor to protesters in places like Iran or, or or China who have their own agency are the negative local developments that they're focused on. Um, and so if you were to look at at a trend among those, it would be autocrats who surround themselves only by loyalists. You know, they make boneheaded, unpopular decisions often, whether it's to invade Ukraine, to to weld the doors shut on Chinese families before lifting all zero COVID precautions without any planning, or decisions to, to terrorize Iranian women with a morality police, or I might add in a very different context, to overturn Roe versus Wade after 50 years of its acceptance by most Americans. I think those things were important in some of the outcomes we've seen over the past uh, year, anti-democratic forces doing it to themselves. Now, how uh, what, what sticks in my mind is how much of this is related to the war in Ukraine and how much of it is a secular trend. Uh, as I've noticed, and I'm sure you've all kind of noticed this, is that the, the Ukraine cause resonates much more in the Western world than it does in the global South. Um, you'll get very different reactions to this war if you talk to somebody from India or, 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 or Tunisia or Lebanon. It's, it just looks different to them. They see this as a fight within the West, but yet, we do have these green shoots of democratic revival um, take, taking place. Um, how much of this, uh, stick with you for the moment, and then move to Max, Josh. How much of this do you see as kind of a direct knockout of Ukraine, and how much of it is just a secular trend? 
I mean, it's one of the most important factors. It's not all, and, and it's different with different audiences. And different parts of what's happening in Ukraine and what the Ukrainians are accomplishing resonate in different places. In the West, you know, the, the speech that Zelensky gave before a joint session of Congress and the imagery and the values that underpin all of that may be very salient. Um, you shouldn't even actually speak of the West as one because, you know, we have these struggles within our own system. Um, but even that got a bipartisan reception. But then, as you say, in, in the global South, maybe what speaks there even more strongly is is the the sheer effectiveness, the practical effectiveness on the battlefield as you contrast that with the inability of of of, of Russia to 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 make ground and how, and how corruption is is undermining their 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 intelligence and their military and all of that. So I think there's different aspects of it. It's just the the pure practical, you know, mm -hmm. inability of Putin to accomplish his fundamental objectives, one of the most important things of his entire reign, and he can't do that. I think that's that, that's that's that speaks to to powers in the global south who don't want to be with a loser. Right. No, I think I think that's the key variable here. In, in the West, it's all it's largely about the inspiration of Ukraine, but in the global south, it's it's do we really want to hitch our wagon? to this uh, loser. Max, your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's, it's great to be with everybody, and I uh, agree with what both uh, Josh and what uh, Jonathan had to say. I think, I, I think Ukraine was pivotal in the sense that the West was suffering a crisis of confidence, I think, uh, before the war, where the narrative, at least on the Russian and Chinese side, I think really prevalent in Beijing and Moscow, was that the West was in decline, uh, strong man, authoritarian leadership is the is the way is the way of the future. That you can that it, it leads to effective governance. Unlike in democracies, where look how poorly run democracies are. Look how poorly America handled COVID, for instance. And and hence, uh, you know, here's an here's an example where Putin was going to use his new military that he had spent, you know, most of the last decade focused on modernizing and, and rebuilding uh, against this corrupt ragtag group of Ukrainians with an unpopular president. And oops, you know, and what it turned out is that strong Marin uh, authoritarian rule has a ton of deficiencies and that uh, popular, popularly elected democratic leaders um, can become unpopular, but they can also reverse that. And that democratic societies are incredibly strong and resilient. Uh, and so I think when that then turns to thinking about how the global South is viewing this conflict, you know, I, I look, I tend to think of democratization. It comes in waves. It comes in trends. It's it's there's we uh, often talk in, in the literature, there's the climate of democracy, where are the winds blowing. And you kind of then get that vibe, that sense, OK, it, what is a better political system? Is it, you know, authoritarianism? Does that leader actually need to step down? Do you actually need to hold competitive elections? Why bother? Uh, and that those questions were really building up over the last decade. Uh, but I think what we found when we just like look at the war is that, uh, you know, Western weaponry, incredibly important, incredibly impactful. Uh, and, and when you look at the power of, that the United States has sort of demonstrated without actually doing very much, you know, on the one hand, we're providing uh, an enormous amount of assistance. On the other hand, this isn't really, you know, impacting our lives, right? In terms of, you know, the United States spending a hundred billion dollars to help Ukraine, 
yeah, we can do that. We can totally afford to do that. And oh, by the way, we can also afford to do a massive climate change pill. We can do all sorts of things. And so what I think we're demonstrating is that the West has this ability uh, to respond. And in Europe, and maybe just one quick point here, is that we're also seeing the strength and resilience of, of European governments, of European democratic governments, where here's this big energy lever that Putin thought he could wield against Germany, against Europe, that if he cuts off gas, Europe is screwed and they'll come on bended knee back to the Russians. Well, guess what? Germany doesn't look like it's actually going into recession. Its industry somehow magically has responded to this crisis way better than we expected. And they're now, I think what, what I've seen is basically off Russian gas. I mean, this is just an amazing turnaround. Why? Because we have resilient governments that respond to crises and are well-run and effective. And that's a better advertisement for the strength of democracy worldwide and does more to promote democracy worldwide uh, than I think anything else that we can do. And so I think the wind is now, I think, in the, at the back of, of liberalism and democracy, I think, worldwide, in part because Ukraine has, has given us confidence again and shown the world what the West and Europe and the United States and, and other, other Asian democracies can do when pushed. So what, what I'm hearing from you, Max, is that basically you, ha you, you have the kind of the demand. This, this crisis has allowed the allowed democracies to show their efficiency, their, 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 their viability, their efficacy. There's a there's kind of a demonstration effect to this. That's one piece of the puzzle. Another piece is the inspiration effect. Um, the, the, the seeing Ukraine, that Ukrainians are willing to fight for this thing called democracy makes leads us in the west where, where we were having this crisis of confidence to think it maybe this democracy thing wasn't so bad after all same thing i asked josh though do you see a secular trend in kind of democratic revival or was the or was the ukraine war some kind of catalyst look it's no wonder why democracy and we were all suffering a crisis of confidence because you know the 2008 economic crisis was you know a cataclysmic economic event that caused a crisis in, in confidence in, I think, American capitalism, capitalism worldwide in the American system, American model, uh, and created uh, all sorts of huge problems for technocrats in Europe. You know, part of the rise of Orban is in response to the 2008 economic crisis, where he could rightly point to and say, you know, all these European economic technocrats got it wrong. Uh, and so I think some of that, the economies were recovering. Now, you had a lot of autocrats that were just sort of riding the wave of improved economic performance. But now some, you know, there's COVID was a stress test. Uh, and I think the, the response to Russia has also been a stress test. And this to, to Jonathan's point about suddenly taking Polish uh, democratic decline seriously, Hungarian democratic decline seriously. Well, you know, both of these economies are in trouble and the EU has resources and revenue and says, OK, if you want this, if you want this revenue, uh, then you have to make some reforms. And the, and that has sort of, I think, beginning to turn the tide, not fully. We'll see there's a Polish election next year. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we're beginning to see is just gaps in problems in that authoritarian model and the endemic corruption that it causes, the weakness of economic performance over time. And then democracies have regained our footing. Um, and the similar, just to point out, and Brexit, you know, is probably one of those examples of sort of the peak of, of the populist, of the rise of populism in 2016. Uh, well, you know, the Brits are suffering from that. And you've seen a real trend uh, back, uh, you know, toward the European Union against Brexit uh, because of the economic consequences that 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 has caused. So I think there's a secular trend here, but it, it, 
trends may exist under the radar, but it causes trigger. You need triggers. You need big right. events to bring them to surface. And that's what I think the Ukraine war has done uh, globally. So it's more of a catalyst. So both are correct. Jonathan, you look like you wanted to jump in here. Uh, you know, so much to say, too. I mean, I, look, I also think um, one six uh, in the United States played a real role <clears throat> in those concerns about rising populism. Um, nobody has mentioned Trump, but, you know, you have to because it had a direct impact on global democratic trends to have a U.S. leader who didn't give a hoot about democracy or human rights. In fact, um, in sort of just the opposite way. So I, I don't look just at, at Ukraine. I, I think that the Biden administration um, highlighted, I think, what Americans wanted, which was a return to a responsible government um, and strengthen demo democratic leadership globally. And I think it's important. But I just want to say this too, just in the global south. I, look, you can't ignore that when we talk about the global south, uh, you know, there's a lot of non-democracies that are there. A lot, there's also a lot of corruption that exists. You know, you want changes in the global south. You got to focus on, you know, what's taking place in these countries. Uh, one thing that Russia exports better than anybody is corruption and the ability to to do that. And I think China is also in that same space. And I think that it's a that that's the battle. Uh, so, you know, democracy has momentum. You know, democracy has to be sustained. It has to be nurtured um, and it has to conti continuously be built, be built back up. And I totally agree with Max. These trends, uh, you know, we have to be all, all the information about democratic backsliding was in front of our faces. There are a number of indexes and reports, uh, nations in transit. Freedom House does a wonderful sort of annual review. You could see these trends taking place, but even U.S. governments, successive U.S. governments, failed to address or focus on these issues. And I think I think that was a real failure, including for the Obama administration, who I work with too, was that we we didn't invest. And we should be consistently invest. I call it investing in democracy forever. Never see the democracy space. So I'm I'm hopeful that that Ukraine can help if we win. Uh, you know, uh, if if Ukraine wins this war, it will, um, and that it's successful democratically. We still they still have a long way to go. Ukraine um, and Max, uh, you you brought up what was a good point about the trends that were taking place before the war. Ukraine still has a long way to go. To, to on its EU track. I think they can do it. I know the Ukrainians can do it. But if you lose sight of the importance of those steps, um, you can win this war and then Ukra Ukrainians can um, can lose after if we don't keep a focus and attention on these issues. Now, Jonathan, you, both you and Max referenced things in the West that are part of a larger thing. This is the battle within the West right now within Western countries between uh, democratic and populist forces, um, to, 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 to put it that way. Um, Jonathan, you, re you referenced 1-6, Max, you referenced Brexit. Do you see the, I mean, the, the war in Ukraine, how it's resonating within Western societies and affecting and influencing this struggle? That's going on within our own country, um, within Western Europe. Um, we see this. We, we we see this happening everywhere. Is Ukraine kind of giving confidence to the democratic side in that? Anybody who wants to jump in on that, but uh... look, I'm a little. I'm worried. I'm more worried about how Ukraine is starting to break down along party lines. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a new Congress. 
Uh, and it's uh, foreign policy issues, even Ukraine, while there seems to be uh, significant support in polling, uh, foreign policy issues, um, it's not bread and butter like the economy or issues that maybe have a direct impact or understood completely and can be manipulated. And I think you've seen the numbers dropping amongst uh, Republicans in terms of support, what level support should be uh, given. So, you know, one hand, uh, Ukraine is obviously in President Zelensky's speech, as Josh pointed out, the, the values, what he spoke about should resonate and should be very familiar uh, with both Republicans and Democrats. But I'm, I'm afraid that the political populism or whatever you want to call Trumpism um, has the ability to um, ignore uh, these particular political debates, and I'm more worried about the trends of U.S. domestic politics pushing the Ukraine issue into one camp or the other, particularly in the lead up to a presidential election. Are we going to see a candidate, DeSantis, take on the position of uh, support for Ukraine? Uh, what would that look like? He's the front runner in polling. I think it's really quite undecided what Republican foreign policy looks like in, in the future. I know where the Biden administration is, and President Biden has, in, in some sense, this is a, 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 a legacy issue for him, and it has been as somebody who's worked in this uh, as vice president, now president, uh, strongly supported Ukraine, its democracy, its Euro-Atlantic integration. But um, I don't know what the Republican Party standard bearer's position is going to be. Is it going to be cut the support? Let's focus on China. Is it going to be, um, is it going to be sort of America first again? And it really depends. So, Brian, I'm not, you know, I'm not certain. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And and so I think it's challenging when it comes to democracy, particularly even within uh, Washington. If you're not supportive and willing to take on democratic deficiencies in the United States, willing to support conspiracy theories about elections beyond, you know, four years after um, after the presidential election into the new election. Gee, I don't know how that looks globally. And I suspect even in Europe, what I hear when we talk to diplomats and others, I'm sure Max and Josh would agree too, is, you know, is can we count on the United States on these issues over the long term. I'm just speaking specifically to the United States. I'm not talking about others, but I think the US is the trend maker um, and the key component to successful, successful democracy globally doesn't happen without a strong democratic United States leading the way. Uh, Josh, do you share uh, Jonathan's, uh, uh, I don't wanna call it pessimism, but uh, cautious pessimism, I guess, or, or are the Ukrainians gonna save us from ourselves? Unfortunately, I do share the pessimism long longer longer term i mean we among ourselves and many you know in in in, in our country are going to share the, the 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 confidence that we get on the the sort of pro democracy side they you know the inspiration we get from from the ukrainians and you know that we see the value in our democracy in that in that even when we when we have we make just as many mistakes, and when we have leaders who are not fit to solve the problems um, um, in, in a broadly popular way, we we self-correct. And you know, we talk about the succession of leaders in in the UK since Brexit, or we talked about Trump, who you know, four years and he came and went. Whereas in you know Russia and China, those populations are stuck, and in Iran, they are stuck with their leaders for life. Like that matters to us and to them, I think. 
uh, the populations there even more so. But but I do share the pessimism ultimately because I I do not see the the evidence of a strong bipartisan consensus in support of that and of the values and the institutions of of liberal democracy. Um, just look at what's happening in 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 the House and who's you know in ha, has the strongest control there. Unfortunately, I mean I have these 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 deeply like negative. Uh, almost apocalyptic views that you know ultimately b before that really gets better you have to go through one of these cycles that we go through in our history every 80 years or so going back to you know 80 years ago world the world wars 80 years before that the civil wars and that actually continues through english political history so we're kind of due for that and i'm afraid that it's going to get much better before uh much worse before it gets better but Max, it's up to you to like be the optimist caucus on this yeah, no, program. I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> and I, I knew I could count on you. Go ahead, Max. <laughs> I hate to be the optimist. I mean, where I, I sort of marginally disagree, it, well, let me just disagree. I think when, um, first, I think if you look at Europe, for instance, uh, there's a new polling that come out that comes out regularly from Eurobarometer. Support for Ukraine is incredibly high. And it's been sustained despite the fact that Europeans you know, had to pay high energy costs, have turned down the thermostat. Uh, and, and the war has really been felt there in terms of inflation costs and everything else. But yet the support is really high. Um, and also support for kind of uh, exiteer parties of, of country, you know, within countries of, you know, support for leaving the EU has uh, precipitously declined part of a secular trend since Brexit. But when we come to the United States, Look, what's I, it's it's hard to look at the house and say, okay, this is a good story. But what's bizarre about it is that the election was a repudiation, actually, of the extreme right, where uh, candidates aligned with Donald Trump did not do well in in states like Pennsylvania, in in Georgia, and elsewhere. Uh, and and so you know, it was a historically terrible election for the Republican Party that had run essentially a MAGA uh, 2.0 election uh, campaign. And, uh, and Democrats had an incredibly impressive night for, uh, for a midterm in which the party uh, controls, power, uh, controls the presidency. But what happened is that the Republican Party looks entirely incoherent. And instead of moving towards the center, where a number of candidates did quite well, they are, you know, Kevin McCarthy needed every vote. And the far right used their clout to extract whatever it could. And so now, and this, I think, is going to be a political disaster for the Republican Party because, uh, and I think it's a disaster for Ukraine, frankly, because it's good that the House passed funding or the Congress uh, passed funding for Ukraine uh, before the last Congress. So we have enough money for 2023. It's really hard to see how there's going to be additional funding in 2024. But more broadly, from a, just a political perspective, Democrats every single day are going to remind the American public of how extreme the Republican Party is and how they can't be trust with the keys to the car. Uh, and and the Republicans are in danger of proving them right. So I think uh, which is which is then, you know, sort of build off the momentum for the Democrats and in, in, that they've had in 2022. Now, we'll see American politics is like, you know, it's a hurricane. Who knows who will be the Republican nominee? Who knows who will be the Democratic nominee? But I do think that trend lines, if we're talking about trend lines, it, it's not like anti-Ukraine was a popular position. In fact, it kind of labeled Republicans 
as adopting a weird position that was out of the mainstream, not just of the American electorate, but also of Republican voters. So, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some sort of shift. I don't it's hard to see this in the, in the House, but I think that's where the trend line is pointing to. Josh from the Pessimist Caucus. No, I, I was going to say thanks, Max, for talking me off the ledge. Like, that was actually very, very helpful to point out that the anti-democratic forces have now lost three elections in a row. We have a majority in this country that favors preserving our, our democracy, and we have the tools, we have the fair elections that, that others, you know, don't have in the world. And we should talk about, in the second half, some of those examples and the non-kinetic threats and the importance of, of those electoral uh, flashpoints. Uh, yeah, but we've got a lot going for us right now. Yeah, no, that, that's something I do want to drill into in the second half. Before we get there, there's one more thing I wanted to cover in this first half. But Jonathan, you had a you had a you had a, a, a comment. Yeah, can I come in from the pessimism or what you call us, the pessimist caucus? Uh, Max, <laughs> you're. I, I want to be in your team too because I, I I like to be um, uh, positive. I I did want to add too. Look, I I I think you're right, Max. I mean, I I did point out that that you know that that Biden was elected. You know, I think maybe Josh used course correction, and clearly, you know, um, that that to me for the for the pro democracy forces uh, globally, it was it was a really positive thing. But but Brian, you you were talking about Ukraine, and um, and and I, Max, you mentioned the the funding. Um, I'm a I'm a bit of a I worked on the Hill for 13 years and worked on budget uh, on but on the budget side on both sides, executive and ledge. And, um, you know, there's funding that goes all the way through for Ukraine uh, budget support, uh, supposedly until the end of the fiscal year, which is September. And, you know, what comes next is really important because Ukraine, this this macro support that's needed, um, Ukraine's economy can't survive without that. And if we think that the war is going to be um, sort of long term and we don't know what what, uh, you know, when when we can, you know, Turn off that that assistance needs. Um, when we come to this period in the summer, we're going to have some pretty hard questions in the administration, Biden administration, well, with a uh, with a Congress that is unlikely to want to move another big package, and but it's going to be needed because you start to look at the ledger of who's providing the support, the EU, IMF, World Bank. So they're going to have to come back to Congress, and it's not going to be at the end of this year. It's going to be in the summer. To start to figure out how we make sure that Putin doesn't look out and calculate, look, that's when the funding dries up. And so I, I just um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more uncomfortable, not that it can't be done, because I think if you could if Kevin McCarthy were to allow his caucus to vote just based on support for Ukraine, I think you would have an overwhelming number. Of I do. I do, too. Members on the right and you know, sort of Republicans and Dems that do support this. But, you know, within that deal that was struck. Uh, involved sort of arcane sort of getting into the sausage of the legislative process and the rules committee and these other pieces and it makes it very difficult for things that are that are politically problematic from some parts of that caucus to um to bring these things up for a vote so i'm 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 with you i mean i think if people had their way um support for ukraine would continue but I worry more about the the internal mechanics. sausage making yeah, of these the things. Mechanics. Yeah. Stepping back before we move into the second half, where I do want to talk about Russia's diminished capacity. Um, 
Stepping back from the United States for a moment, though, we, 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 we noted a couple of data points here. Um, Brazil, of course, obviously being one, um, Hungary being one, Philippi, the Philippines being one, um, India has... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, parliamentary elections this year and a general election in uh, in 2024. What are you guys watching to see where this trend is going? I mean, you all are kind of professional democracy people. Uh, what uh, what are you all watching to see where this trend is going? Go ahead, Josh. Well, I I do think that the the, the positive cases of the past year, you know, is enough to call it a trend. Ukraine, Iran, China, Brazil, U.S. midterms, e e even some of the 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 counter the counter examples um, in like you know Hungary Belarus Venezuela the, 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 even despite in those places heavy state media control there seems to be a majority supporting democracy they just don't have what we have which is access to to fair elections so the question that I that I that that, that, I, that I watch to answer your question is is whether you know populations are are able to overcome those those autocratic subversions in the democratic process and it's it's very touch and go you know some sometimes the people win and sometimes they lose so the two flashpoints that my team has its eyes on this year are the two elections that are most consequential for the future of Europe Turkey and the one that Max mentioned earlier Poland um my my think tank program GMF's Alliance for Securing Democracy you know Brian got its start after the 2016 election tracking Russian interference in elections um and we've done projects monitoring disinfo campaigns against elections in France and Germany. We got our RT kicked out of Germany because we caught them campaigning against Annalena Baerbach. And, and now we're starting uh, projects to monitor this year's Turkish and Polish elections, watching for the full spectrum of, of autocratic subversion, whether the tools are online or offline, whether the autocratic perpetrators are foreign or domestic, we will be on the case. And then in 2024, we will turn our radar uh, towards EU parliamentary elections and, of course, the U.S. presidential election. Because unfortunately, you know, even though we've got uh, the, the starting of a positive trend, democracy is absolutely on each of these ballots, and the autocrats know it, and they're fighting to win to kill democracy. Uh, any thoughts from Max or Jonathan on this? That was pretty yeah, comprehensive. I, I, I think I, I agree with everything Josh said. I think Turkey is, is you know, and that will be in the first half of the year, um, potentially a major global flashpoint. Um uh, because, you know, the opposition, I think the, if you look at polling, looks like it's, uh, you know, doing fairly well, doesn't, you know, Erdogan, the, it, it, it's difficult to see a path for Erdogan. I mean, he's got a lot of political talent, but the economy is a total disaster. Um, but there's an expectation that this will be maybe not a, a fair election, but it will be a, a legit election in the sense that there's not going to actually be uh, 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 monkey business with the with with the actual voting, uh, at least in the opposition figures that I've talked to in Turkey, and I think if there is, then there could be if there is like clear electoral manipulation by uh, the AKP and Erdogan's party, I think that will not be just accepted within Turkey, right. and I think that could be a real um, as has real potential uh, to to be something we're all focused on and really. Uh, drive the discussion. Um, and hopefully it's a free and fair election or relatively free or relatively fair. Uh, and and then if you know Erdogan loses, it, that also sends a huge global shockwaves, I think, uh, throughout the world. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a whole new ballgame. Uh, Jonathan, any quick thoughts before I shift gears? Yeah, no, I just I, I, I you know, couldn't agree. I, I know Josh is um, 
uh, focus on Poland and Turkey. Look, it, you know, in Turkey, you've already had the the one of the more popular leading opposition figures uh, arrested, the mayor of Istanbul. And we saw what took place in uh, mayoral elections in 2018, where Erdogan tried to change the outcome of that Istanbul race. And so um, it, I think it's also this is a big test for the United States in Europe as well. Uh, Turkey is in the middle of, let's go back to Ukraine, obviously plays, it, it tries to sit on, on both sides of two fences, uh, both with its relationship uh, with Russia, Mr. Erdogan's personal relationship with Mr. Putin, uh, but also uh, providing Ukraine uh, with certain weapons, drones, uh, uh, brokering uh, the the grain deal. It, it It's placed itself in, in such a position to try to be almost indispensable to both. Max is right, the economy has been in shambles for, for several years, sort of extraordinarily. Uh, but one thing I think we would all agree on is autocrats, um, they don't like to give up power. Uh, and, and Mr. Erdogan uh, has been involved in corruption uh, in a very significant way. They've locked up many opposition human rights leaders um, and, and would likely face consequences for the actions um, that he has taken uh, should he lose? So there's there's no clear, you know, um, you know, autocrats don't like to lose, want to stay in power, and I really do think we're going to have a challenging issue because of the role that Turkey is playing vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Ukraine, and elsewhere regionally in terms of security, Eastern Med, South Caucasus, Syria, Iraq. Um, it, it's an important player. So in the past, the default has been always to to not get too involved in uh, Turkey's political issues domestically. And I, I suspect that you'll see the, the West, the United States, uh, Europe and others staying out of that fray to begin with and very challenged to respond, Max, I'm afraid to say, in a, in a punitive way, if it's a clear, uh, you know, a clear, um, you know, situation where the election outcome was not determined in a fair, free, open, transparent manner, you know, uh, meeting international standards. It's likely to be the case, but it's going to be very challenging to craft a policy in this current security environment uh, that that would unfortunately address those challenges. So we basically have consensus that Turkey's going to be a flashpoint. That's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at how Russia's war on Ukraine could be hindering Moscow's efforts to undermine democracies farther afield. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is the director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And joining us also from our nation's capital is Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator 
located in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau in the U.S. Agency for International Development in the administration of former President Barack Obama. And joining us from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, the, malign, the fellow from Malign Influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under former President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF in the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. For the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. збирає сили для чергової ескалації. Разом з партнерами маємо зробити і робимо все, щоб вже зараз господарям Росії стало зрозумілим, жодна їхня ескалація їм не допоможе. Поразка російської агресії має залишатись безальтернативною, попри всіх і все, кого і що Росія буде намагатися кинути у бій. So I got a call last week from a journalist who asked me if I thought losing the war against Ukraine would lead Putin to step up his non-kinetic attacks on the West, from cyber attacks to disinformation and to election meddling. Now, I said I thought the, the opposite was actually the case. Losing in Ukraine would diminishes, diminish Russia's ability to project power, certainly, certainly in the kinetic sense, but also in the non-kinetic sense. Now, Russia is far from the only cause of democratic backsliding we've witnessed in recent decades, but the Kremlin has certainly had its thumb on the scales. And removing that thumb, so to speak, I believe, could lead to something like a 1989 moment. So am I right? Did I give this journalist the right answer? Or am I just a hopeless, foolish optimist? Max, I guess I'll get some support from you, so I'll start with you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I, well, at least when it comes to the hybrid uh, response from Russia, I do think that if if the war ends and Putin is still in power, uh, and and I think uh, there's a, you know, a lot to unpack in that sentence that I just made. Right. How does the war end? What does it mean? But let's just say there's sort of, you know, the the we're kind of in a frozen conflict. Uh, it's the war feels like a draw. I do think that we need to be increasingly concerned about what Russia will do. Um, and I think it's going to be different than what we saw after 2014, mm. where uh, we were, I think, uniquely susceptible to um, uh, uh, attacks on our information space, on our political system. We hadn't even con never possibly conceived of political interference in, in our democratic elections. Um, and I think now we have built up a degree of resilience. Uh, you know, the work that uh, programs at GMF that, that Josh runs and, and some of the work that I think I did when I was at, at the Center for American Progress focused on Russian interference in 2016 election did a great job of raising awareness, not just amongst the public, but amongst the press corps. Uh, I mean, we forget that in Russia in 2016, you know, they were able to, to, to dethrone the head of the Democratic Party uh, and, uh, and essentially dominate news for an entire month of an, uh, October of an election cycle and with uh, hacking John Podesta's emails. But I think all of that was sort of they kind of played that hand where I am a bit nervous 
is about Russia responding in a more kinetic way, more direct way against uh, some of our infrastructure, against the West, uh, not caring how we respond because we don't quite have the tools to respond uh, anymore because we sanctioned them, you know, to, uh, up the wazoo. We've cut off contact. So that's where I have some concerns. But just to maybe close here uh, to, on the brighter note is that I do think defeat in Ukraine will have a real impact in Moscow. And I don't quite see how, uh, you know, I, it's sort of impossible to see how Putin falls and leaves office. But I also think it's a little bit hard to see how he is able to remain in power if there is military defeat in Ukraine. If our strategy works, Ukraine goes on the offensive and is able to take back more Ukrainian territory, put Crimea under threat, and make this a total defeat for the Kremlin that is now also suffering massive economic uh, degradation caused by sanctions and massive loss of life, uh, I think the winds could blow very strongly uh, underneath Putin's feet. Um, so I think that 1989 moment, it's impossible to predict, but you put in place the conditions for it to happen, and it might happen. And not just under Putin's feet, under, under Lukashenko's feet and, and, and elsewhere yeah. as well. Josh, for years, you and I have been talking about the kind of malign influence problem, the corruption problem, Russia's weaponization of corruption. This is something you you work on. Looking back now, we're a year into this war, a year into sanctions. I mean, have the Western sanctions, It's intuitively, I believe they have diminished Russia's capacity to use that corruption weapon to build networks of influence in the West that they've done so effectively in the past. Has the rug been basically pulled out from under them on this now, or do we still have cause for concern? Yeah, to, to a degree, for for sure. Um, not only the, the imposition of sanctions on the Russian financial system, draining resources and on, on individual oligarchs, making them untouchable, but, but also just as important as every new rule that's on the books, is the dramatic increase in how aggressively the sanctions are enforced, led by klepto capture at DOJ very prominently, lots of resources doing very big and sophisticated international cases, bringing them to 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 trial, rather than frankly, rather than in, enforcement being done by like a small office within you know the annex of Treasury's you know OFAC um, building. So so I do think that that stronger degree of enforcement and all these new sanctions make professional enablers around the world think twice about touching dirty rubles. But, you know, the, the, these corrupt actors are always creative and sophisticated, and they have ways of getting around sanctions and channeling operations through new actors that are not sanctioned. And the Kremlin probably has its steady stream of straw men that it can use to pass money to Western political parties. And our financial systems are still very opaque. So it is. It still remains a major threat. Jonathan, what do you what do you think of, of the overall question? I mean, is Russia yeah, losing I mean, Ukraine going to diminish its capacity? We 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 discussed a couple of unknowns, right? One is the the outcome of the of the conflict, and then the outcome of who is in leadership, which Max pointed out, um, and 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 that has the outcome of the conflict has a direct impact on, you know, who's in leadership and what that means for for Russia. Uh, going forward, can they get to a point where you have a different leadership, uh, less interested in carrying out the type of foreign policy uh, that they have been for the last several decades, or something different, uh, somebody that might respect, and I'm not holding my breath, sort of the 
the borders of 1991 uh, and sort of what that looks like. But when you look across the board, I mean, it's pretty clear right now you have economic decline in Russia. All right. You have a less capable Russian military, which has been used globally, including mercenaries like Wagner. Um, you the energy weapon that has been wielded has been uh, has been uh, impacted greatly in a way that's not that's not really reversible. Now, Europe has made a a security and a and a energy decision to move away from Russia. So you have military, you have economic um, degradation, energy as a weapon, uh, weakened capacities all around. And to me, it, it Russia is less clearly less capable today of inflicting the type of hybrid aggression uh, that Max talked about globally. Um, and so does it make it more dangerous in some other areas? Maybe. Well, I think there'll be more, uh, you know, going down the road if the trends continue. These are the kind of things that lead to political change uh, in Russia. And to try to, for me to go into a crystal ball and try to figure that out, I think we all, we all this is what, you know, sort of many of the analysts are trying to figure out. But there is no, no doubt that they have been degraded, uh, even diplomatically, when you look at the numbers of those that are voting in the UN in support of Ukraine's positions. So Russia is not in a in a driver's seat, uh, but the outcome of the war could change that. And I, you know, I strongly believe with others that that you're not only this is this is about at this point based on sort of past conduct and what we see in Ukraine. Weakening Russia is is a strategy, and, it, and it's important to be thinking about that um, and because you don't want a, a Russia renewed. And, and when we your initial question was about the Ukraine war, just imagine if uh, if Kiev had been taken. Imagine right. if we were in these scenarios, what it would mean for uh, Western economies, uh, global economy for democracies globally. So we're still on the edge. We're talking about the potential for spring offensives or another uh, another another swing by Putin uh, and his military at going back into Kiev. This is far from a done deal. And so I, I, you know, I hate to get sort of into this conversation, but if you look at where Russia is trending, it's it's not from a position of strength. Um, they're weakened. And uh, and I think we should be thinking about how we further uh, weaken Russia, uh, because I think these other issues, security, energy and economics are still at play. Right. Before we wrap up, there's one other thing I wanted to hit on. You you all kind of do track kind of Russian malign influence efforts and active measures around the world. What have you been seeing since the war? Have we seen Russia's uh, efforts to undermine democracy uh, increase or decrease since the war has started? Because I'm, 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 I'm not sure what I see. We're, I'm seeing some limited activity. Um, I, I, my, my gut tells me it's, it's been decreased. But you guys track this a lot closer than I do. Max, do you have any thoughts on this? Did you see more or less Russian malign influence activity since the war? Well, I'm curious what what others have to say. I mean, I think what I've seen is, uh, it's more targeted and focused on the war itself on the mm -hmm. conflict itself i think you know we saw i think a lot of russian efforts around um the grain deal around sanctions 
uh, blaming, trying to blame sanctions for increasing costs of, of energy globally, increasing costs of, of, of food prices. Um, and so I think what you now see is a whole of Russian effort about the war. And so that's where they're, they're a bit distracted mm-hmm. when it comes to trying to interfere in various elections. I think the other trend is quite interesting is that, you know, the war started during the French election. And Marie Le Pen, who prior to the 2017 election, uh, traveled to uh, Moscow to sort of bend the knee, allegedly, you know, received her party, had previously received money from a Russian connected bank, um, you know, spoke out against Russia, not as strongly as as uh, as Emmanuel Macron. But still, you saw distancing amongst uh, far right and hard right parties, including like the Swedish Democrats, which are, you know, a party with Nazi roots trying to sort of distance themselves from Russia. So in some ways, the, uh, you know, the, the, the brethren to the kind of illiberalism that Russia was pushing uh, within Europe have had to distance themselves from Europe uh, or from, from Russia. Uh, the one other case is that there is some allegations around the Italian, the fall of the Draghi government, which then mm-hmm. led to elections and whether there was sort of Russian, you know, uh, there was a Russian hand at play. I don't. I haven't seen enough to. to yeah, I, that I, either I've way. heard the rumors. I haven't seen enough. But either. if anything, it kind of backfired because now you have a far right leader that is very Atlanticist, that has sort of put her, you know, pro-Russian uh, uh, coalition members, Matteo Salvini and and uh, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, you know, to the side. They're in the coalition, but really is uh, is leading, uh, you know, making Italy just as strong when it comes to uh, supporting Ukraine. So that didn't work. So I think you may see some pushing around the edges, but it's just not a permissive environment for them. Right. And the, the war sucking up their bandwidth to, to meddle elsewhere. Josh, your thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good point that they're distracted and, and focused. And like if they could if they could roll out very strong cyber capability capabilities, for example, which has been shocking that we haven't seen more of that over the past year, like that, I'm, I'm sure it would be first and foremost focused on Ukraine. Um, but 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 I, I I think that's a really good point. I guess I, I have not seen overwhelming evidence one way or the other that they're doing more or less. But the other thing about this is that the um, evidence of cases of of these types of covert activities, they often come with a lag, you know, w- w- because of it, the investigative reporting or the declassification, mm-hmm. the decisions around that, you know, takes takes time. Um, so so I. I yeah I don't see strong indications one way or the other but I I think it's safe safe to assume that Putin is still engaged in what he sees as a total asymmetric war against the United States and its democratic partners that started anywhere between 2007 and 2014 depending on how you how you count the same thing actually happened in 2014 where the the activity really focused on then it was starting with Le Pen but the, but but also in the Netherlands and others it focused on supporting what Putin was then trying to do in Ukraine so I wouldn't be surprised if we see cases come out mm-hmm. along along those lines and yeah looking forward fair to expect that uh, so long as Putin remains in the Kremlin uh, the Russians will be engaged in every major flashpoint around the world where democracy is on the line I did expect them to be a lot more active in the U.S. midterms than they appeared to have have, have been. Um, Jonathan, last word to yeah. you as I'm watching the clock and we're yeah. up against no, the Yeah, no, I mean, one area you, you clearly see some some pushes on the narratives regarding uh, Ukraine in the United States, and I think they've been picked up 
by people like Tucker Carlson and others, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of painting Ukraine in a bad light, corrupt, uh, you know, typical Kremlin talking points um, that I think do have an impact if they're being taken and used uh, by Fox News or others. And that's why you see some of the drop in dec- maybe the decline in some Republican support mm-hmm. uh, in polling. Uh, because the messaging uh, is it does have an impact. And so that's why I said that even when you start to look at Republicans in Congress, it's important to know. So uh, those issue areas, I could see them working on. I agree. Uh, Russia's distracted a uh, couple of areas that they work on. One is sanctions evasion, uh, which Josh maybe, you know, sort of alluded to. Uh, that's a prominent trend. Remember, Russia is trying to secure weapons. It is trying to su- uh, secure technologies that it needs. It's not only sanctions, but it's also export controls. Um, and so it, it's challenged in a number of other ways. So putting its resources and efforts uh, globally, I'm sure we will find out whether it's North Korea, Iran, or elsewhere, where it's seeking to uh, circumvent uh, the strictures that have been put in place. I would other say too is you mentioned, you know, obviously you spoke globally, but but I think they're, the Kremlin's biggest challenge is domestically. And so a lot of the messaging that you're seeing right now, their focus is internal. Um, and, uh, and you know, when we talk about um, sending, you know, the amount of Russian soldiers that are being killed, the, uh, the lack of success on the battlefield, constant shifting of who's in charge, uh, having to counter the, your flanks with uh, Prigozhin and others with different messaging. Um, I think Putin's more concerned frankly, about internal concerns, too, about maintaining his own power uh, when he has other people nipping at his heels and a policy that's failing. And if he has to call up another, uh, you know, 500,000 Russians to uh, to be mobilized to fight this war, we already saw what the what happened during this this first mobilization. It was incredibly unpopular. Uh, if he has to do it again, it's going to be incredibly right. unpopular. And so I would be looking more at the internal communications. Um, and uh, obviously, there's no limit to the crackdown on Russians uh, that dissent or desert or um, or think in an opposite way of Mr. Putin regarding uh, this 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 war. So I look at that trend. Uh, but I, I don't see I don't see anything signif- more significant now than before and how they affect democracies. But I think they have reshifted their resources to deal with some other uh, issues that are of importance. But even in their near neighborhood like Central Asia and South Caucasus, you can already see the weakening yes. of Russian power in these spaces and difficulty on their end to to threaten uh, their neighbors in the way that they could before. Yeah, no, it's very, very visible in the South Caucasus, and there's evidence that Putin is feeling the heat at home as well. I don't know if any of you saw the video of him having a bit of a hissy fit at a cabinet meeting uh, yesterday that was that was circulating online. That's about all we have time for today as we're bumping up against the end. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. 
Moore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And also joining us from our nation's capital has been Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development. And joining us from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Align Influence of German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and also served at the IMF and U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a whole lot smarter. Thank you it's all. great to be here. Thanks, Thanks for you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the twitter at least for now at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team